0: And a greeting to each of you in Jesus' precious name. Jesus' name is a precious name, isn't it? Where would we be if it wasn't for the Lord? I, of course, as I come here, my mind goes back many years and has a lot, lot of memories of being in this place, in this church building, and in this community. And we're uh, happy to be here with you again this morning. It's a bit over 30 years since I left my home here and moved to Arkansas in 1990, 32 years ago, the, uh, going back to familiar places, one of the things you realize is how fast time moves along and how quickly things change. And when I left here, I was sitting with the, the young men. And there's a few others here that were sitting there with me. and. I think they're grandpas now. I'm a grandpa now, Uh, and it didn't take long to get there. And as we look forward beyond this point, we uh, we realize it's not going to be long until we are standing before God. And one of the things we need to do while we're here is prepare for that moment and help other people to prepare for that moment. If I had a, a marker board here, I would put three letters, three capital letters, DHS. Now, I don't know, DHS doesn't really bring just a real good, uh, does that bring good things to your mind? I don't really care for some of the encounters people have had with, with the DHS. Well, we're, we're talking about a different DHS here this morning, it is a a sin that uh, many, many people are involved with, and it's a sin, unlike some sins, it is a sin that you can be sitting here this morning as a good church member, and this sin can actually be at work in your life. See, there's a lot of people that are respected and appreciated and well thought of in the church and community who are involved with this sin. The sin is that of a divided heart, divided heart syndrome. Now, there's a lot of syndromes anymore, so I'm not really focused on the drum part of it, but the sin part of it. Divided heart sin. The divided heart syndrome. That thing, that idea, that desire, that uh, thinking that I can serve God and me, or I can serve God and money, or I can serve God and popularity. I can serve God and my friends. I can serve God and my family. I can live a normal, respectable Christian life, but keep self on the throne. So what is life under God's kingdom? like under God's rule, if you're really living under the rule of God, what is, what does that sort of a life look like? If we would uh, examine that question, how does a true follower of Jesus, a true disciple of Jesus, what does his life look like? How does he live? How does a true follower of Jesus live? How does a true Christian live? A 24-7, 365 Christian. We're not talking about a Christian that, shows up at church Sunday morning, and he's a Christian, and he's got his church clothes on, and he's got his church behavior on, we're speaking about someone who's a Christian every day, every hour, every minute, that's just, the life of Christ permeates his life. What does that look like? There is, in the Bible, three chapters that I think give us a, 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 probably as good a summary of the Christian life as any. We call them the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. They are, have been called the Kingdom Constitution. If you would be a Christian, if you choose to be a disciple of Jesus, a follower of Jesus, you need to know the Sermon on the Mount. You need to know it. You need to study it. And you need to understand it. You need to live it. Memorize the Sermon on the Mount. For all of us, that's a good challenge, but especially for you as young people, I challenge you to memorize the Sermon on the Mount. And don't stop with that. Meditate on it, think about it, apply it to your life, live it out. Be a true follower of Jesus. You must if you will be in God's kingdom. So I, I'm taking on a, sort of a big assignment. We're going to try to do a, a quick summary through the Sermon on the Mount and then want to zero in, especially on the, the divided heart part of it, okay? So starting in, in Matthew 5, we start with the Beatitudes, the Blesseds, blessed are the poor in spirit and so on. And these are attitudes that are required if we're going to walk in Jesus' footsteps, being poor in spirit, being needy. Anybody here like to be needy, like to be weak, like to just not have what it takes? Well, that's where the Christians start, And that's how we live the Christian life, is as needy people, weak people, who just constantly need the grace and the help of God. We don't have what it takes to live the Christian life. We need his grace. We need it continually. We need it more and more. Blessed are those who mourn, those who have a true, a genuine sorrow from sin, a turning from sin to God. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the surrendered those who truly give control of their life to God. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, who realize, you know, what's going on in my heart, it just doesn't match up to the character of God like it should. And they're hungry and they're thirsty for more of God and more of God's cleansing and his righteousness in their hearts. Blessed are the merciful. Now, as God goes to work in your heart, and you, first of all, are seeing your own needs turning from sin, Hungering and thirsting after righteousness, guess what happens? It affects how you relate to others, doesn't it? Blessed are the merciful. It affects your relationships and how you are are ready to extend mercy to others. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. And blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Now, the word blessed there has the idea of having great joy. And so I just tell you that if you in your life are finding yourself in a place where joy is lacking, come right back here. Put these things to practice in your life and the result will be a tremendous heavenly joy, an indescribable joy that only the Christian can experience. When these attitudes are present in you, they affect every area of your life. Your life is transformed. It's impossible to have these attitudes to live out these attitudes with self-enthroned. And then you go to the next uh, section. talks about being salt and light. That's the sort of work that God does in you and through you as, you as you have these attitudes. Verses 17 through 48 of chapter 5 speak of true righteousness. We already heard about the bar being raised in the Sermon on the Mount, how Jesus consistently raises the bar. If you look at verses 17 through 48, you'll see some of the changes that God brings about in in your life. He changes your eyes. He changes the things that your eyes look at. He changes your tongue, the things that you say. Your your tongue is changed. He changes your heart, your love. We heard about that in our devotions. That's the end of chapter 5 here. He changes your love so that you love even those who wrong you. He changes what you love. It's a deep change that God brings into our lives. True righteousness. We're not, with true righteousness, we're not concerned just with the command, but Jesus brings us now beyond commands to examine our heart and our motives. Not just what I do, but why do I do it? What is, what is the drive of my heart? Then now, True righteousness, jump to chapter 7, and we start there with the verse, judge not that ye be not judged. We'll come back to chapter 6. Judge not that ye be not judged. True righteousness affects how I relate to others, and how I, uh, it brings honesty into my relationships with others. See, it's so easy in our relationships with others. Jesus, Jesus knows people. Jesus knows us. Jesus knows how we tend to do And he points that out so clearly here that we tend to, in our relationships with others, we tend to give ourselves the big breaks and be hard on others, be critical of others. True righteousness changes that to where I I am honest about myself and how I am, and I'm honest about how others are, and I don't judge others more harshly than I judge myself. Verses 15 through 20 Some people take verse 1 there and just throw out all judgment, all discernment, all we just accept everybody like they are and never have any. Well, 15 through 20 doesn't do that. Jesus teaches us there about judging and discerning, doesn't he? He starts out the chapter, judge not that you be not judged. It's clear that he then goes on to especially condemn a certain type of judging, but not all discernment and judgment. Because in verses 15 through 20, he tells us, beware of false prophets, ye shall know them, by their fruits. There are some judgments that we need to make there. We need to discern, we need to discern the false prophets. Uh, verses 6 through 11 of, of chapter 7, verse 7, remember it says, ask and it shall be given you. Seek and ye shall find. Knock and it shall be opened unto you. That is describing a person who turns to God in time of need all right, true Christians, those who are truly disciples of Jesus, they turn to God in their time of need. They ask, and they seek, and they knock. They, uh, they know where to go. They know who has the answers. They, they know who has the help that they need, and they turn to God, rather than trying to force their own way through. You know, you have that option. You have that you have that option as you go through life to decide this is the life I want and I'm gonna do my best to make it happen. And it's a miserable way to go through life because you're constantly fighting things and trying to force your way in and trying to climb to the top. And it, how much better is it to give those things to God and say, Lord, you, you know what I need and this is what I'd like, but I give it to you and, and turn to God in our times of need. Well, let's, let's re- read briefly quickly here, the uh, conclusion to the Sermon on the Mount. So Jesus gives wonderful teaching in, in the Sermon on the Mount. This is his conclusion in Matthew 7, verse 21. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works. And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Now I have talked about. You know, it's not long till we will stand before God. Here in Matthew seven verse twenty three, we have some. Some words. I hope and pray none of us will hear when we stand before God. I never knew you. Depart from me, ye who work iniquity. And just before that, he got done saying that many will say to me in that day, many will be there saying, Lord, Lord, you're my Lord. You're, and, and he brings out the point so clearly that it's not about saying that he's Lord, but it is living it. That's where it's at. It's not a matter simply of calling him Lord, but it's a matter of obeying him, of following him, of of doing his teachings. Do the will of your Father which is in heaven. And then he goes on to that familiar, we say, children's story about the wise man and the foolish man, right? Well, if we as adults can get it, we'll be doing well. We need to get it. See, in that story he brings out so clearly both heard, The wise man heard, the foolish man heard. The difference was in what they did, whether they lived it out, whether they followed the teachings of Jesus, or whether they didn't follow the teachings of Jesus. Well, let's go to Matthew 6 now. We're going to zero in a bit more on Matthew 6, and then I want to look at a a story from the Old Testament, an account from the Old Testament of a man who shows us the bitter end of a man with a divided heart. So Matthew 6 starts with these two words, take heed, in other words, beware, wake up, danger zone. What is the danger zone that he talks about? What is the danger? What is it that to us as Christians is so dangerous that he brings it out here and and introduces it with the words, take heed, beware. Take heed that ye do not your alms before men to be seen of them. Verse 5, when thou prayest, thou shalt not be as the hypocrites are. They love to pray standing in the synagogues and in the corners of the streets that they may be seen of men. Verse 16, Moreover, when ye fast, be not as the hypocrites of a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces that they may appear unto men to fast. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. What is the danger? Well, the thing that he warns us of here is seeking honor from men seeking to be honored by people seeking for people to think well of us and as you as you look at this at this passage you can see that you can do the very best of activities praying and fasting and doing good deeds for others you can do the best of activities with a wrong motive with a dangerous motive with a motive that has the danger of snuffing out your Christian life. You can do the best of deeds, the best of activities, with that wrong motive. There's that temptation to live your life in a way that looks good to men instead of to God. Three secret traits we find here of Christ followers, of true disciples. We want to look here at true disciples and how they live. Three secret traits... Of the Christ follower of the true disciple. Now, there's a, a lot of in a lot of ways, secrets for Christians are not good things, right? Many times the secret things that Christians have have are, are hidden things they shouldn't be doing. The secret things that people do. But here are some secret things we should be doing. Secret things that true Christians do. One is alms deeds. Secret alms deeds. They're done quietly without the trumpet, without letting anybody know we're doing them. The second one is secret prayer, shut thy door, pray to thy Father which is in secret. It is real, genuine, God-honoring, kingdom-building prayer. That's what Jesus calls us to. That's what Jesus did, and that's what we as his followers will do, in secret. When when we are stressed, when there's turmoil, when we see needs in others, when we see needs in our own heart, I've got to go talk to Daddy about this. That's the Christian. That's the Christ follower. I've got to go talk to Daddy about this. I need to talk to my Father in Heaven about this. I need to bring these needs. I need to intercede for others. Praying on the streets for honor doesn't fit with being poor in spirit or being surrendered or hungering and thirsting after righteousness. God is like the Beatitudes. I mean, he calls us to have those attitudes in in the Beatitudes, but God is like the Beatitudes. He's not parading on the streets. Almighty God is found in the secret places. You go in the secret places, you can can have communion, sweet communion with him. Verse 16, secret fasting. Earnest, diligent, diligent. Sacrificial prayer and fasting versus parading my spiritualness. I'm going to just read a few verses from Matthew 23, verses 5 through 8. Matthew 23 is where Jesus gives that list of woes. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Well, in verses 5 through 8, he says, But all their works they do for to be seen of men. They make broad their phylacteries and enlarge the borders of their garments and love the uppermost rooms at feasts and the chief seats in the synagogues and greetings in the markets and to be called of men, Rabbi, Rabbi, but be not ye called Rabbi for one is your master, even Christ and all ye are brethren. Now, that'd be nice. I, I wish I could uh, read through a passage like this and just say, you know, those people out there, they've got problems with this. They like to be honored. They like to have the top seat. They like to be well thought of. They, but I can assure you as I look, I, I'm sure it's right here. And sadly, I'm sure it's right here. I know it because I live with it. Loving to be honored. Loving to be well thought of. Loving to be respected. Jesus calls us to forsake that and to follow Him and to seek His honor and His honor alone. That's where our heart needs to be focused is on bringing glory to our dear Lord Jesus, bringing honor to God, not seeking honor for ourselves. Jesus here in Matthew 23 speaks woe to those who love to be honored. It's dangerous. It's very dangerous. Well, the next danger we have here in Matthew chapter 6 is found in verse 19. It says, Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, where thieves do not break through nor steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also." If you're like me and you were raised in, in this type of a setting, the sort of church we're gathering in here this morning, you, you probably were told, were taught, realized from a young age that your church, the, the people you are with, are uh, serious about obeying all things whatsoever. We read through the Sermon on the Mount and we try to obey it from one end to the other, don't we? Even when it means that we don't go to war or when it means that uh, it's going to cost me a bunch to, to turn, return good for evil or even… Well, we… Uh, back in the summer of 1990, just before I moved out of Lancaster County, I I was making preparations to move to Arkansas. Was going to be the principal of an ACE school in Arkansas, and so I went to Dallas, Texas, for training for for that. And uh, we were there Monday morning. Training started. Uh, it was a multi-denominational setting, but largely more of a back Baptist background. A lot of Protestant people. A few Mennonites there. Uh, we were we were all required to wear our suit coats, so I wore my plain coat. Well, in that group of probably 40 trainees, it didn't take me long to spot another plain coat. <laughs> and guess what? At the first break, somehow, we managed to be at the same table. I, isn't that something? But we did. I mean, we spotted each other and we found each other. And we knew we had some sort of a tie, right? And so we're sitting there, and there's another young man, just our age, uh, from a Baptist church, and, and he, of course, saw that we were dressed in a way that was a bit peculiar, and he wondered, who are you, and what, do you, what church do you, are you with? And, and uh, we responded, we told him that we're with the Mennonite church, and he wondered, What's, what makes you different from the rest, or, or what... And uh, we told him that, you know, I mean, we, are just, we just do our best to just look at the Scriptures, look at the New Testament, look at the teachings of Jesus, and obey them all. And his response was, uh, well, that's what we do, too. Well, I knew better than that. I mean, I knew, you know, they've got, they've probably got divorce and remarriage in their church. They probably, I'm sure they, they uh, participate in the army. And, you know, I could have probably gone down a list of 10 things and said, I, I don't think you do this and this and this and this and this. And, of course, we do. I mean, you all sit up a little straighter and, we do, don't we? We do. We do all things, don't we? Well, I thought we did, and I'm grateful to be part of a group that wants to do all things. But today I read the New Testament and I'm not so sure that we do so well at it all all the time. And this is one of those, this is one of those I think that we struggle with sometimes. How well do we apply this passage of Scripture to our daily lives? Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth. I just say that If this scripture does not inform your financial decisions, if you're not making financial decisions in view of this, I think you're missing it in an important area of your life, in an area that's going to bring a lot of danger into your life. This is the other area of of warning that Jesus gives to us in this chapter. Are riches a blessing or a curse? Wow, I don't know. That's sort of a hard. I mean, I, is that too, too strong language? Uh, let, me, let me reword that just a little bit in a way that I think will help us maybe to understand a little better. Are riches a help or a hindrance? Let me uh, just read to you quickly. The first five times in our King James Version, the first five times that the word riches is found in the New Testament. This is what we read. The deceitfulness of riches choke the word. That's two times it's that. The deceitfulness of riches choke the word. The third time is how hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God? Number four, how hard is it for them that trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God? And the fifth time, choked with cares and riches and pleasures." The tone of the New Testament, the tone of the New Testament is simply this, that riches are dangerous. They tend to steal your heart and choke your love for God. Now let's read on here in Matthew 6, verse 22, The light of the body is the eye. If therefore thine eye be single, thy whole body shall be full of light. But if thine eye be evil, thy whole body shall be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in thee be darkness, how great is that darkness?" We read here about a single eye versus a double, no, we don't. We read here about a single eye versus a an evil eye, right? See, it doesn't say a single eye or a double eye, it says a single eye or an evil eye. And so, when we think of a single eye, it's, we're thinking here of an eye that is just totally turned toward God and to doing his will. Verse 24, no man, no man can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. Ye cannot serve God and mammon, or God and wealth is the thing he zeroes in on here. You can put in other things there. You can't serve God and your friends and their opinion and their desires. You can't serve God and your own reputation. You can't serve God and it must be just God. That's what he tells us. No man can serve two masters. We'd like to think we can, but we can't. The narrow way is too narrow for a divided heart. A single eye, a singular focus on serving God, brings light into your life. When your heart is divided, it brings darkness into your life. Let's go to Numbers 22. We want to look at an Old Testament example of a man with a divided heart. Numbers 22, we read here the account of Balaam. The story starts here with Israel just won a victory over the Amorites. They're camped near Jordan, near Jericho uh bat ready to cross. Moab is in great distress. We could say they're scared spitless. Moab is, what do we do with these people? These this people, that they've won a, a battle or two already, and Balak, the king of Moab, was very scared. He came up with a plan. Balaam was a man of his time who had a reputation that whoever he would bless was blessed, and whoever he would curse was cursed. And so he thought, if I could just get Balaam to come here and curse the Israelites they will be cursed and then we can have victory over them well so he sent some men to Balaam and they offered him riches and they offered him honor if he would just come and curse there we have them both don't we riches and honor they offered him riches and they offered him honor if he would just come and curse the Israelites and so Balaam said, well, I've got to talk to God about this. Verse 12 of Numbers 22, God said unto Balaam, Thou shalt not go with them, thou shalt not curse the people, for they are blessed. Now, just think about it. That's a pretty clear statement from God, isn't it? You're not supposed to go with them. You're not supposed to curse this people. These people are blessed. Very clear direction from God. Well, Balaam rose up the next morning and said unto the princes of Balak, Balak, get you into your land, for the Lord refuseth to give me leave to go with you. Now in that little sentence there, we've got some, I think, at least a peek into his heart. God refuses to let me go. I think it's Wilson's that, that defines that Hebrew word that's translated, refuseth translates it as to refuse with a resolved mind that cannot be prevailed on by the means that have been used. In other words, it seems likely there was, there was some conversation between God and Balaam. It, that God didn't just say, no, you can't go, and Balaam said, oh, okay, that's fine. No, it seemed Balaam, and as we continue the story, we see this, Balaam wanted to go, Balaam wanted the honor, Balaam wanted the riches. And every argument he could bring to God as to why he should go, God just wouldn't be moved. And finally, the next morning, Balaam comes back to them and says, I can't. God refuses to let me go. Sorry, I I can't go with you. Well, it would be nice if the story would end there, wouldn't it? But it doesn't. And so when uh, Balak discovered that Balaam couldn't be moved by the money and the honor that he promised him, he... Well, what do you do when you're just trying to force your way through life? You just, you just amp up the power, right? And so he put a little more force in it, and he amped up the wealth and the honor. I'll give you greater riches and greater honor if you just come. And this was Balaam's response, beautiful response in verse 18. And Balaam answered and said unto the servants of Balak, If Balak would give me his house full of silver and gold, I cannot go beyond the word of the Lord my God to do less or more. Isn't that a beautiful response? You know where it came from? From his head. He knew what to say. He he gave a head response. Look at the next verse, and I think we see his heart. All right? Look at verse 19, and now I think we hear his heart. Now therefore I pray you, tarry ye also here this night. God had given him such clear direction the first time around. He had a very, very clear word from God. This is a blessed people, do not curse them. But this was his response. Tarry ye also here this night, that I may know what the Lord will say unto me more. Maybe, just maybe, God changed his mind on all this. Hang around. Let me talk to God some more. And God came unto Balaam at night and said unto him, If the men come to call thee, rise up and go with them. But yet the word which I shall say unto thee, that shalt thou do. And we don't have any indication they came, but he was up the next morning and ready to go with them. And we know that as God looks at that all, that God was angry with him. It tells us that in verse 22, and God's anger was kindled because he went. See, Balaam had a problem of a divided heart. He wanted to please God, but he also wanted the riches and the honor. And when we're in that place, when we're in that place of a divided heart, it makes it really hard for us to find God's will, to obey God's word, to just move forward doing what God wants, because we're torn in that place of our own desires and God's desires. We have a divided heart. So Balaam rose and went without the condition being fulfilled. We don't read that the condition was fulfilled, that they came and called him the next morning. Well, so Balaam went. uh, We'll skim over this pretty quick. He had that encounter with the donkey, the donkey talking to him. Uh, He he went. And as you look at at his interaction with Balak and with the, the blessings that he pronounced on Israel, There was a lot of ways in which he was very successful. I mean, he did what God told him to do. He blessed. Let's just read uh, uh, two verses, Numbers 24, 8, and 9. God brought him forth out of Egypt. Here Balaam is making a prophecy concerning Israel. God brought Israel forth out of Israel. He hath, as it were, the strength of a unicorn. He shall eat up the nations his enemies, and shall break their bones, and pierce them through with his arrows. Now, notice this. We're, we're going to come to something a little bit later that will say, what? Because of this verse. He shall eat up the nations his enemies and shall break their bones and pierce them through with his arrows. Now, if you were Balaam and you just made this prophecy, what would be probably the stupidest thing you could possibly do? Wouldn't it be to go join the enemies of Israel and fight against them? I mean, you just got done saying they're going to pierce their enemies through with arrows. Okay, let me go join their enemies. No, that's... That's not intelligent at all, is it? He couched, he lay down as a lion and as a great lion. Who shall store himself up? Who shall store him up? Blessed is he that blesseth thee and cursed is he that curseth thee. So Balaam goes home and at this point it, it looks like he's successful. Right after this comes Numbers 25. Numbers 25 is where the Moabite women seduce the men of Israel. Right? And uh, Israel experiences defeat because of this experiences judgment because of this uh, the, the Moabite women are coming by and the men of Israel are just going after them and this is something God strictly forbade them to do but they do it anyhow now let's go to Numbers chapter 31 verse 8 Numbers 31 verse 8 so Balaam went home but we find him here again in Numbers 31.8. It says this, speaking of Israel, they, the Israelites, slew the kings of Midian beside the rest of them that were slain, namely Evi and Rekem and Zer and Hur and Reba, five kings of Midian. Now listen here. Balaam also, the son of Beor, they slew with the sword. Balaam was fighting against him. Balaam, what? Come on. You just got done saying they're going to pierce their enemies through with arrows and now you joined their enemies and they did it to you. Balaam also the son of Beor they slew with the sword. Go to Numbers 31, verse 16, and we read something else very, very sad concerning Balaam. Behold, well, so they they saved the women after that battle. They saved the, they killed a bunch of the Midianites, they saved the women. And uh, then this was what Moses said to them. Behold, these, the women, caused the children of Israel through the counsel of Balaam. See that? See, Numbers 25 happened because of Balaam's counsel. Josephus gives us, we don't know for certain if this is accurate, but Josephus gives us, he's a Jewish historian, he gives us this story. He tells that this is what happened. When Balaam left, King Balak, he is on his way home, but he's still thinking about how could I get that money? How could I get that honor? And he came up with this plan. He sent a messenger back and he said, listen, Balak, you get your women to seduce their men, you'll be able to get victory over them. And here we have it. Behold, these caused the children of Israel through the counsel of Balaam to commit trespass against the Lord in the matter of Peor, And there was a plague among the congregation of the Lord. This is the foolish end of a man with a divided heart. The divided heart is easily defeated. A single single eye, that single life, that single hearted devotion to God brings light into your life. That single focus, your single focus is to love God, to obey and honor him. The double eye, the, the evil eye, brings darkness into your life. And we can even do religious things under that. The evil eye is okay with religious things, with doing good deeds, with praying, with fasting. The evil eye is okay with that. But it's a mixture of me and God. It's a mixture of Popularity, my reputation in God—it's a mixture of riches in God. It's a—it's a God and life instead of a God alone, life. Let's turn now back to Matthew chapter six, and I'd—I'd I'd like for us to read together a verse there in Matthew chapter six. I—I I think it's. To me, it's a, it's a key verse of the Sermon on the Mount, and it points us to a God-alone life. God, it's just you. I, I'm just about serving you. It's not about serving me and my reputation. It's not about serving my friends. It's not about serving riches, but it's about serving you. In verse 33, he says, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Seek first God's kingdom, His rule. Seek first, more than anything else, that God would rule more fully in your heart, in your life. Seek first, seek more than anything else, that God would rule more fully, more completely in the lives of the people around you. Seek first God's righteousness, true righteousness, genuine righteousness. Let's read this verse together. Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. But seek ye first the kingdom of God, and his righteousness and all these things shall be added unto you. Let's kneel for prayer.